Section 18 of Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. Chapter 8. Pressures on the System, Part 2. Responding to Challenges and Changes. Another obstacle in the path toward accommodation of a higher flight rate is NASA's legendary can-do attitude. The attitude that enabled the agency to put the men on the moon and to build the space shuttle will not allow it to pass up an exciting challenge, even though accepting the challenge may drain resources from the more mundane but necessary aspects of the program. A recent example is NASA's decision to perform a spectacular retrieval of two communication satellites whose upper stage motors had failed to raise them to the proper geosynchronous orbit. NASA itself then proposed to the insurance companies who owned the failed satellites that the agency design a mission to rendezvous with them in turn and that an astronaut in a jet backpack fly over to escort the satellites into the shuttle's payload bay for a return to Earth. The mission generated considerable excitement within NASA and required a substantial effort to develop the necessary techniques, hardware, and procedures. The mission was conceived, created, designed, and accomplished within 10 months. The result, Mission 51-A, November 1984, was a resounding success, as both failed satellites were successfully returned to Earth. The retrieval mission vividly demonstrated the service that astronauts and the space shuttle can perform. Ten months after the first retrieval mission, NASA launched a mission to repair another communications satellite that had failed in low Earth orbit. Again, the mission was developed and executed on relatively short notice, and was resoundingly successful for both NASA and the satellite insurance industry. The satellite retrieval missions were not isolated occurrences. Extraordinary efforts on NASA's part in developing and accomplishing missions will and should continue, but such efforts will be a substantial additional drain on resources. NASA cannot both accept the relatively spur-of-the-moment missions that its can-do attitude tends to generate and also maintain the planning and scheduling discipline required to operate as a space truck on a routine and cost-effective basis. As the flight rate increases... The cost and resources and the accompanying impact on future operations must be considered when infrequent but extraordinary efforts are undertaken. The system is still not sufficiently developed as a production line process in terms of planning or implementing procedures. It cannot routinely or even periodically accept major disruptions without considerable cost. NASA's attitude historically has reflected the position that we can do anything. And while that may essentially be true, NASA's optimism must be tempered by the realization that it cannot do everything. NASA has always taken a positive approach to problem-solving, and has not evolved to the point where its officials are willing to say they no longer have the resources to respond to proposed changes. Harold Drawn, manager of the Mission Integration Office at Johnson, reinforced this point by describing what would have to happen in 1986 to achieve the flight rate. The next time the guy came in and said, I want to get off this flight and want to move down to, the system would have to say, we can't do that, and that would have been the decision. 
even in the event of a hardware problem. After the problem is fixed, there is still a choice about how to respond. Flight 41-D had a main engine shut down on the launch pad. It had a commercial payload on it, and the NASA Customer Services Division wanted to put that commercial payload on the next flight, replacing some NASA payloads to satisfy more customers. Drawn described the effect of that decision to the Commission. We did that. We did not have to. And the system went out and put that in work, but it paid a price. The next three or four flights all slipped as a result. NASA was being too bold in shuffling manifests. The total resources available to the shuttle program for allocation were fixed. As time went on, the agency had to focus those resources more and more on the near-term worrying about today's problem and not focusing on tomorrow's. NASA also did not have a way to forecast the effect of a change of a manifest. As already indicated, a change to one flight ripples through the manifest and typically necessitates changes to many other flights, each requiring resources, budget, manpower, facilities, to implement. Some changes are more expensive than others, but all have an impact, and those impacts must be understood. In fact, Leonard Nicholson, manager of Space Transportation System Integration and Operations at Johnson, in arguing for the development of a forecasting tool, illustrated the fact that the resources were spread thin. The press of business would have hindered us getting that kind of tool in place, just the fact that all of us were busy. The effect of shuffling major payloads can be significant. In addition, as stated earlier, even apparently easy changes put demands on the resources of the system. Any mid-deck or secondary payload has by itself a minimal impact compared with major payloads. But when several changes are made, and made late, they put significant stress on the flight preparation process by diverting resources from higher priority problems. Volume 3 of JSC 07700 Revision B specifies that all mid-deck experiments must be scheduled and payload specialists assigned 11 weeks before launch. The rule has not been enforced. In fact, it is more honored in the breach than in the observance. A review of missions 41G through 61C revealed that of the 16 payload specialists added to those flights, seven were added after launch minus five months. Even secondary payloads take a lot of time and attention when they are added to a flight late. Harold Ron, I spend more than half of my time working on things that are not very important because they get put in so late, rather than working on PAMs, payload assist modules, and IUSs, inertial upper stages. I am working on chicken eggs. Those directing the changes in the manifest were not yet sensitive to the problem. Each change nibbles away at the operational resources, and the changes were occurring frequently, even routinely. Much of the capacity of the system was being used up responding to late changes in lower-priority experiments. That flexibility towards secondary experiments tied up the resources that would have been better spent building capability to meet the projected flight rate. Tommy Holloway, chief of the Johnson Flight Director Office, emphasized that, Given finite resources, one must decide its flight rate versus manifest flexibility. 
The portion of the system forced to respond to the late changes in the manifest tried to bring its concerns to headquarters. As Mr. Nicholson explained, we have not done enough complaining about it, that I cannot believe there is not a growing awareness, but the political aspects of the decision are so overwhelming that our concerns do not carry much weight. The general argument we gave about distracting the attention of the team late in the process of implementing the flight is a qualitative argument, and in the face of that political advantages of implementing those late changes outweighed our general objections. It is important to determine how many flights can be accommodated and accommodated safely. NASA must establish a realistic level of expectation, then approach it carefully. Mission schedules should be based on a realistic assessment of what NASA can do safely and well, not on what is possible with maximum effort. The ground rules must be established firmly and then enforced. The attitude is important, and the word operational can mislead. Operational should not imply any less commitment to quality or safety, nor a dilution of resources. The attitude should be, we are going to fly high-risk flights this year, everyone is going to be a challenge, and everyone is going to involve some risk, so we had better be careful in our approach to each. Effect of Flight Rate on Spare Parts As the flight rate increases, the demand on resources and the demand for spare parts increases. Since 1981, NASA has had logistics plans for shuttle flight rates of 12 and 24 flights a year. It was originally forecast, in mid-1983, that the supply of spares required to support 12 flights annually could be accomplished in the spring of 1986. Actual inventory of spare parts had run close to plan until the second quarter of fiscal year 1985. At that time, Inventory requirements for spares began to increase faster than deliveries. A year later, when inventory stockage should have been complete, only 32,000 of the required 50,000 items, 65%, had been delivered. The spare parts planned to support 24 flights per year had called for completing inventory stockage by June 1987. By mid-1985, that schedule was in jeopardy. The logistics plan could not be fully implemented because of budget reductions. In October 1985, the logistics funding requirement for the orbiter program, as determined by Level 3 management at Johnson, was $285.3 million. That funding was reduced by $83.3 million, a cut that necessitated major deferrals of spare parts purchases. Purchasing deferrals come at a great cost. For example, a reduction due to deferral of $11.2 million in fiscal year 1986 would cost $11.2 million in fiscal year 1987, plus an additional $21.6 million in fiscal year 1988. This three-to-one ratio of future cost to current savings is not uncommon. Indeed, the ratio in many instances is as high as seven-to-one. This practice cannot make sense by any standard of good financial management. According to Johnson officials, reductions in spare expenditures provided savings required to meet the revised budgets. As program manager Arnold Aldrich reported to the commission, 
There had been fund contentions in the program for a number of years, at least starting in the mid-70s and running through into the early to mid-80s. Intentional decisions were made to defer the heavy buildup of spare parts procurements in the program so that the funds could be devoted to other more pressing activities. It was a regular occurrence for several annual budget cycles. And once the flight rate really began to rise and it was really clear that spare parts were going to be a problem, significant attention was placed on that problem by all levels of NASA and efforts have been made to catch up. But our parts availability is well behind the flight need. Those actions resulted in a critical shortage of serviceable spare components. To provide parts required to support the flight rate, NASA had to resort to cannibalization. Extensive cannibalization of spares, that is, the removal of components from one orbiter for installation in another, became an essential modus operandi in order to maintain flight schedules. Forty-five out of approximately 300 acquired parts were cannibalized for Challenger before Mission 51-L. These parts spanned the spectrum from common bolts to a thrust control actuator for the orbital maneuvering system to a fuel cell. This practice is costly and disruptive, and it introduces opportunities for component damage. This concern was summarized in testimony before the Commission by Paul Weitz, Deputy Chief of the Astronaut Office at Johnson. It increases the exposure of both orbiters to intrusion by people. Every time you get people inside and around the orbiter, you stand a chance of inadvertent damage of whatever type, whether you leave a tool behind or whether you, without knowing it, step on a wire bundle or a tube or something along those lines. Cannibalization is a potential threat to flight safety, as parts are removed from one orbiter, installed in another orbiter, and eventually replaced. Each handling introduces another opportunity for imperfections in installation and for damage to the parts in spacecraft. Cannibalization also drains resources, as one Kennedy official explained to the Commission on March 5, 1986. It creates a large expenditure in manpower at KSC, a job that you would have normally used, what we will call one unit of effort to do the job, now requires two units of effort because you've got two ships or orbiters to do the task with. Prior to the Challenger accident, the shortage of spare parts had no serious impact on flight schedules, but cannibalization is possible only so long as orbiters from which to borrow are available. In the spring of 1986, there would have been no orbiters to use as spare parts bins. Columbia was to fly in March, Discovery was sent to Vandenberg, and Atlantis and Challenger were to fly in May. In a commission interview, Kennedy Director of Shuttle Engineering Horace Lamberth predicted the program would have been unable to continue. I think we would have been brought to our knees this spring, 1986, by this problem, spare parts if we had kept trying to fly. NASA's processes for spares provisioning, determining the appropriate spares inventory levels, procurement and inventory control are complicated and could be streamlined and simplified. As of spring 1986, the Space Shuttle Logistics Program was approximately one year behind. Further, the replenishment of all spares, even parts that are not currently available in the system, has been stopped. Unless logistics support is improved, the ability to maintain even a three-orbiter fleet is in jeopardy. Spare parts provisioning is yet another illustration 
that the shuttle program was not prepared for an operational schedule. The policy was short-sighted and led to cannibalization in order to meet the increasing flight rate. The Importance of Flight Experience In a developmental program, it is important to make use of flight experience, both to understand the system's actual performance and to uncover problems that might not have been discovered in testing. Because shuttle flights were coming in fairly rapid succession, it was becoming difficult to analyze all the data from one flight before the next was scheduled to launch. In fact, the Flight Readiness Review for 51-L was held while Mission 61-C was still in orbit. Obviously, it was impossible to even present, much less analyze and understand, anomalies from that flight. The point can be emphasized by citing two problems that occurred during Mission 61-C, but were discovered too late to be considered at the 51-L Flight Readiness Review. 1. The space shuttle brakes and tires have long been a source of concern. In particular, after the 51-D orbiter blew a tire at Kennedy in April 1985, there was considerable effort, within budgetary constraints, to understand and resolve the problems, and Kennedy landings were suspended until certain improvements were made. See Section Landing Another Critical Phase, page 186. Mission 51-L was to be the first flight to land in Florida, since 51-D had experienced brake problems. STS-61-C landed at Edwards Air Force Base in California on January 19, 1986, four days after the 51-L flight readiness review. The 61-C brakes were removed following landing and shipped to the vendor for further inspection and analysis. That inspection revealed major brake damage. The subsystems manager at Johnson, in charge of the brakes, did not receive the information until January 27, 1986, one day before 51-L was launched, and did not learn the extent of the problem until January 30, 1986. 2. The inspection of the 61-C solid rocket booster segments was completed on January 19, 1986, four days after the 51-L Level 1 Flight Readiness Review. The post-recovery inspection of the 61-C solid rocket booster segments revealed that there was O-ring erosion in one of the left booster field joints and additional O-ring anomalies on both booster nozzles. Although the information was available for Marshall's 51-L Level 3 review at launch minus one day, it was clearly not available in time for consideration in the formal launch preparation process. These examples underscore the need to establish a list of mandatory post-flight inspections that must precede any subsequent launch. Effect on Payload Safety The payload safety process exists to ensure that each space shuttle payload is safe to fly and that on a given mission, the total integrated cargo does not create a hazard. NASA policy is to minimize its involvement in the payload design process. The payload developer is responsible for producing a safe design, and the developer must verify compliance with NASA safety requirements. The payload safety panel at Johnson conducts a phase series of safety reviews for each payload. At those reviews, the payload developer presents material to enable the panel to assess the payload's compliance with safety requirements. 
Problems may be identified late, however, often as a result of late changes in the payload design and late inputs from the payload developer. Obviously, the later a hazard is identified, the more difficult it will be to correct. But the payload safety process has worked well in identifying and resolving safety hazards. Unfortunately, pressures to maintain the flight schedule may influence decisions on payload safety provisions and hazard acceptance. This influence was evident in circumstances surrounding the development of two high-priority scientific payloads and their associated booster, the Centaur. Centaur is a space shuttle-compatible booster that can be used to carry heavy satellites from the orbiter's cargo bay to deep space. It was scheduled to fly on two shuttle missions in May 1986, sending the NASA Galileo spacecraft to Jupiter and the European Space Agency Ulysses spacecraft, first to Jupiter and then out to the planet's orbital plane over the poles of the Sun. The pressure to meet the schedule was substantial because missing launch in May or early June meant a year's wait before planetary alignment would again be satisfactory. Unfortunately, a number of safety and schedule issues clouded Centaur's use. In particular, Centaur's highly volatile cryogenic propellants created several problems. If a return-to-launch site abort ever becomes necessary, the propellants will definitely have to be dumped overboard. Continuing safety concerns about the means and feasibility of dumping added pressure to the launch preparation schedule as the program struggled to meet the launch dates. Of four required payload safety reviews, Centaur had completed three at the time of the Challenger accident, but unresolved issues remained from the last two. In November 1985, the payload safety panel raised several important safety concerns. The final safety review, though scheduled for late January 1986, appeared to be slipping to February, only three months before the scheduled launches. Several safety waivers had been granted, and several others were pending. Late design changes to accommodate possible system failure would probably have required reconsideration of some of the approved waivers. The military version of the Centaur booster, which was not scheduled to fly for some time, was to be modified to provide added safety, but because of the rush to get the 1986 missions launched, these improvements were not approved for the first two Centaur boosters. After the 51-L accident, NASA allotted more than $75 million to incorporate the operational and safety improvements to these two vehicles. We will never know whether the payload safety program would have allowed the Centaur missions to fly in 1986. Had they flown, however, they would have done so without the level of protection deemed essential after the accident. Outside Pressure to Launch After the accident, rumors appeared in the press to the effect that persons who made the decision to launch Mission 51-L might have been subjected to outside pressure to launch. Such rumors concerning unnamed persons emanating from anonymous sources about events that may never have happened are difficult to disprove and dispel. Nonetheless, during the Commission's hearings, all persons who played key roles in that decision were questioned. Each one attested, under oath, that there had been no outside intervention or pressure of any kind leading up to the launch. There was a large number of other persons who were involved, to a lesser extent, in that decision, and they were questioned. All of those persons provided the Commission with sworn statements that they knew of no outside pressure or intervention. 
the commission and its staff also questioned a large number of other witnesses during the course of the investigation no evidence was reported to the commission which indicated that any attempt was ever made by anyone to apply pressure on those making the decision to launch the challenger although there was total lack of evidence that any outside pressure was ever exerted on those who made the decision to launch 51-l a few speculative reports persisted one rumor was that plans had been made to have a live communication hookup with the 51-l crew during the state of the union message commission investigators interviewed all of the persons who would have been involved in a hookup if one had been planned and all stated unequivocally that there was no such plan furthermore to give the crew time to become oriented nasa does not schedule a communication for at least 48 hours after the launch and no such communication was scheduled in the case of flight 51-l the flight activity officer who was responsible for developing the crew activity plan testified that three live telecasts were planned for the challenger but they related in no way to the state of the union message during the teacher activities on flight day four during the phase partitioning experiment on flight day five during the crew conference on flight day six the commission concluded that the decision to launch the challenger was made solely by the appropriate nasa officials without any outside intervention or pressure findings one the capabilities of the system were stretched to the limit to support the flight rate in winter 1985-1986 projections into the spring and summer of 1986 showed a clear trend the system as it existed would have been unable to deliver crew training software for scheduled flights by the designated dates the result would have been an unacceptable compression of the time available for the crews to accomplish their required training two spare parts are in critically short supply the shuttle program made a conscious decision to postpone spare parts procurements in favor of budget items of perceived higher priority lack of spare parts would likely have limited flight operations in 1986 three stated manifesting policies are not enforced numerous late manifest changes after the cargo integration review have been made to both major payloads and minor payloads throughout the shuttle program late changes to major payloads or program requirements can require extensive resources money manpower facilities to implement if many late changes to minor payloads occur resources are quickly absorbed payload specialists frequently were added to a flight well after announced deadlines late changes to a mission adversely affect the training and development of procedures for subsequent missions four the scheduled flight rate did not accurately reflect the capabilities and resources the flight rate was not reduced to accommodate periods of adjustment in the capacity of the workforce there was no margin in the system to accommodate unforeseen hardware problems resources were primarily directed toward supporting the flights and thus not enough were available to improve and expand facilities needed to support a higher flight rate five training simulators may be the limiting factor on the flight rate the two current simulators cannot train crews for more than 12 to 15 flights per year six when flight rates come in rapid succession current requirements do not ensure that critical anomalies occurring during one flight are identified and addressed appropriately before the next flight end of section 18